Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us. I understand that we have audience members tonight from Ghana, from India, uh, Israel, in Singapore, in London, and other places around the world, as well as all over the United States. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. I think, I think we'll have a good evening. We'll be talking with two authors, both alumni of the famed University of Iowa Writers Workshop about the Ghanaian American experience in literature and art. They are Yaa Chasi and DK Nuro, and you'll be meeting them soon. To get us started though, I'd like to introduce Associate Provost and Dean of International Programs, Russ Ganim. Thanks for joining us, Russ. My pleasure, Joan. Thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. uh, well, before we, we begin our conversation with Derek and Ya, could you say a little bit about the UI's current engagement with people and places in Africa? Sure. Um, the UI has had a long um, engagement, long involvement with uh, various countries in, in Africa. We've got several different partnerships across our, our 11 colleges. Uh, for example, we've got um, a very strong partnership in medicine uh, or between the College of Medicine and uh, uh, clinics in the country of Uganda. Similarly, we've got an excellent program in the College of Nursing focused on Eswatini. Um, and we've also, and with respect to Eswatini, also known as Swaziland, uh, we've got colleagues from the College of Business who've been pursuing uh, research connections there as well as the College of Education. Um, I can also say that we have sent many students abroad uh, to countries such as Tanzania. Uh, we have a very strong Swahili language program in the Division of World Languages, Literatures and Cultures. Um, and within the last, say, four or five years, that program has grown tremendously. And so we've been able to send students to, to Tanzania. We've been able to welcome scholars from, from Tanzania, and that's created all sorts of rich exchanges. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the International Writing Program and the number of alumni um, that we have uh, all over Africa, uh, writers who for the last 50 years have come to Iowa City in the fall to participate in the International Writing Program. Um, and so when we go to Africa, when we visit our colleagues and establish research partnerships, one of the things that we always like to do is to connect with alumni from the International Writing Program. Um, and this has created a really rich network uh, for us that helps us expand partnerships uh, moving, moving forward. Um, a, a couple of other things that uh, we're, we're really proud of um, is our Mandela Washington Fellowship Program. Uh, this was begun uh, in the by the Department of State in 2014. Um, and in particular, this is uh, under the auspices of the government's uh, Young African Leadership Initiative. So every year, uh, uh, young leaders from Sub-Saharan Africa, ages 25 to 35, come to the United States. There are about 700 in, in number, and they participate in various leadership institutes um, focused on either business, public policy, uh, the sciences, in some cases, agriculture. Um, we have participated in the Mandela Washington Fellows Program uh, since its inception. Um, and again, have created uh, a large network of alumni that are helping us recruit students from Africa, develop research partnerships, 
and help us establish more of, of a presence with our friends and colleagues in, in Africa. So we're, we're, we're very proud of, of that accomplishment and look to build on it for the future. Mm -hmm. And um, I understand that there may be increased recruitment of African students as we go forward. Right. And one country in particular where we've seen a very significant increase in the number of applications from international students is Ghana. Um, in fact, that's the one country where we've probably seen the, the biggest increase. We're not quite sure why that is, uh, but we are in the process of of formalizing an agreement with the very prestigious University of Ghana in Accra. Uh, I think that the success of our writers workshop, um, and in particular, uh, Derek Anoro and Yaja Si may play some part uh, in uh, our uh, increased, uh, our, our, in the increased awareness of the University of Iowa uh, in Ghana. Um, either way, we're very excited about uh, being able to establish partnerships there. We've also seen an uptick um, in applications from Nigeria. Nigeria will be the most populous country in the world at the end of this, this century. Uh, and similarly, we've seen an uptick in uh, applications from Kenya. Uh, so we are focused not only on those countries, South Africa obviously is a, it's a country that we've had longstanding ties to, but we see that the future is, is very bright and we look forward to what lies ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, what lies ahead for us right now is an interview with uh, Derek Noro and Yaja Si. And I wonder, Russ, if you would please introduce our first guest. I would be absolutely delighted to, to do so. So DK Noro, otherwise known as, as Derek, is a Ghanaian-American fiction writer based in Iowa City. He is associate writer and collections exhibition associate at the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art. Nuro is also the co-founder of the Reclamation Project, an initiative that, through the literature of the African diaspora, reconnects, reconstructs, and heals the distance and divide created by the Middle Passage between Black people on either side of the Atlantic. His debut novel, What Napoleon Could Not Do, is forthcoming from Riverhead Penguin Random House in 2022. Welcome, it, uh, Derek, it is my pleasure to have you here on the World Canvas stage. Thank you for your presence. Thank you so much, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here and I'm so honored that you guys have um, given, are given attention to my dear homeland, Ghana, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it's wonderful to hear the story of Ghana and maybe we can start uh, with, with your personal story and your journey as a writer, can you can you tell us a little bit about um, your childhood, both in Ghana and the U.S., and then how you came to the writers' workshop? Well, I was born and raised in Ghana. Um, I moved. I relocated to the U.S. when I was eleven. I relocated specifically to Los Angeles, uh, which is where my father lived. Um, as far as writing, I had always written. Always, always. I was that kid who was cooped up in the room working on his masterpiece. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was me. Um, but I was also a practical Ghanaian. Even, even as a kid, I was a pretty practical Ghanaian. Uh, and I was the son of uh, practical Ghanaians. You know? and I say this to say that um, the arts was just not supposed to be a thing, and it was not going to be a thing. What was going to be a thing, on the other hand, was uh, the sciences. I was good at science. I was ambitious. So what was gonna happen was I was gonna become a doctor. Oh, and 
I, uh, so I made myself believe that I was going to become a doctor because it was the practical choice. Now, just because I made myself believe I was going to become a doctor did not mean that uh, immediately my, the, the desire to write was suppressed in any way. It certainly was not. Um, I couldn't suppress it. And I found myself sneaking away and working on my masterpieces, you know? Uh, but um, so when college rolled around, actually, this is, this is how, like, I guess maybe how strategic I approached my choice of um, college. Um, I thought, all right, if I can't suppress this, I, I'm going to enter an institution that will do the suppressing for me. So I thought, well, Johns Hopkins University is the place where doctors are made. Um, it is the, it, you know, it has a reputation as a sciencey school. And I thought it would be inhospitable to the arts. So I, I thought, all right, I'm going to go to Hopkins and I'm going to be a doctor. And this thing with this writing nonsense is going to stop. Little did I know, actually, that Johns Hopkins University has an incredible writing program. And to make a long story short, my first class at Hopkins was not a science class. My first class at Hopkins was Introduction to Fiction and Poetry Writing. And um, I guess, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we're delighted by your career choice. <laughs> Thank you. That, that the world is uh, not that you wouldn't have made a fantastic position. We know that, that you would have. It's just that we're happy that you, you opted for the, the, the writing craft. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about your time here in Iowa City at the Writers' Workshop and how you became friends with Yajazi. Um, I met Ya in, Ya was two years ahead of me at the workshop. So I entered the workshop in 2014 and I met Ya um, very early on. Um, she had just completed the workshop, but she was sticking around for a third year, which is an option that the workshop gives graduates. But um, my, my journey to the workshop was, uh, after college, after college, I spent two years in Ghana um, conducting research for <laughs> what, what at that time my, my precociousness said was going to be a novel that would be finished in like a few years, right? Um, well, it took me 10 years. Uh, actually, it took me about 11 years to finish the novel. But um, the research I conducted between 2009 2011 actually shaped the the entirety of the last 30 pages of my novel what Napoleon could not do um, but so after after Ghana I returned in 2011 I spent time in the DMV area worked and prepared uh, my application for the workshop um, I knew that's where I wanted to be because it was the best um, you know Guineans are supposed to always go for the best. So. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, and I, you know, I, I applied, I luckily got in and the workshop, I, I, I owe everything and then some to the workshop. I owe everything and then some to Sam Chang, who was the director of the workshop. She really is the reason why I'm here and Yaa is here. She has um, turned that place um, into uh, this wonderful setting where uh, different voices from all walks of life come together and are supportive of each other. It is an incredibly supportive community. And another thing that the workshop offers you it, it is it offers you time to think and to work. But for me specifically, because I, I, I had worked 
um, I entered the workshop when I was 27 years old. And because I had worked and I had that routine of every morning waking up and going to work. Um, and uh, I didn't have to do that at the workshop because the workshop is fully funded, right? So it's a free, uh, for lack of a better term, it's a free education, you know? So the part of my mind that was occupied by going to work and uh, was troubled by finances, right? Meeting financial demands that we all have to meet was freed up a little bit. And it was freed up for me to dream, right? And I really could dream and I dreamed. I, I, I dreamt um, and I dreamt big. Um, and I've, I dreamt all the way to a novel that is, you know, that spans three continents, that spans multiple time periods, you know, and um, without the workshop, you know, I would not have a novel to my name. So I owe, again, everything and then some to the workshop and to Sam Chang. Well, indeed, you know, having the time and the space and the resources to dream is absolutely essential mm -hmm. uh, for, for writers. And we're delighted that you, you had that experience. And later in the program, uh, we will hear an excerpt from your forthcoming novel. <laughs> we're certainly looking forward to, uh, to, to that. So thank you. Thank you so much, Derek. Um, and now it's my pleasure to, to introduce our special guest for the evening, award-winning author, Ya Jazi. And good evening, Ya, who is joining us. Ya is joining us from Brooklyn, New York. So thank you. Um, so she's uh, coming back to Iowa City virtually, and we're delighted to have you back in uh, in our city of Lit. Um, so Ya Jazi was born in Ghana and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. She holds a BA in English from Stanford University and an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop where she held a Dean's Graduate Research Fellowship. Her widely acclaimed novel, Homegoing, was followed by a second novel, Transcendent Kingdom. Tanahisi Coates said of her writing, I think, it is, I think I needed to read a book like this to remember what is possible. I think I needed to remember what happens when you pair a gifted literary mind to an epic task. Homegoing is an inspiration. And I can say that I have read Homegoing and Transcendent Kingdom. They are absolutely marvelous novels. And I would uh, recommend them to you a million times over. Um, so it is my, my great pleasure to welcome Ya Jazi. And Ya, um, again, thank you for, for being here. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your personal story and your time uh, in the Writer's Workshop here at the University of Iowa. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks for that introduction. And thank you, Derek, for being here with me. I loved hearing about your, your own pathway to Iowa. Um, like Derek, I was born in Ghana. Um, I was born in Mampong, Ghana. And then I moved to America when I was two. Um, and my family moved around quite a bit. Um, so I lived in Ohio, Illinois, Tennessee, and then Alabama. Um, and I spent most of my childhood in Alabama until I left for college. Um, and like Derek, I was always writing. I kind of knew from a very, very young age that writing was what I wanted to do. Um, I wrote the first short story that I can remember writing when I was seven years old. And it felt really at that point, um, like with as much clarity as, as any child can have, I knew that this was something that I really, really not only 
enjoy doing, but like needed to do in some way that I couldn't really explain. And that felt different from the way that other um, children's would children would talk about their, their interests and hobbies. Um, but as also, as Derek said, I had very practical parents um, who were not supportive, um, but unlike Derek, I think um, I didn't really care that much and uh, <laughs> continued to kind of insist on the life that I wanted to live. Um, and thankfully, uh, and thankfully I did because I, I ended up at Stanford studying with Stegner Fellows in the creative writing program. Um, and then from there, uh, I took a year off between college and graduate school um, and ended up at Iowa, um, which was a dream come true. Um, a million thanks to Sam Chang, a million thanks to that program. It was, um, as you were discussing before, it was the place that offered me the time and the space to do the writing that I wanted to do. Um, and I wrote much of Homegoing while I was there. Um, so it was uh, incredibly, incredibly uh, formative and, and powerful to be in that place at that time. No, that's, that, that, that's absolutely wonderful. And so, um, yeah, what, tell us a little bit more about your, your inspiration. Um, obviously there's historical inspiration, maybe family inspiration. What, what else goes into your process when you, when you are writing? Um, I mean, everything. It's hard to say where inspiration will, uh, will come from. Um, Homegoing had a pretty kind of clearly defined beginning to it, which is that I, uh, I took a research trip to Ghana. I was on a fellowship um, that Stanford gives to sophomore students uh, to complete a research project between sophomore and junior years. And I had applied with the intention of writing a novel um, and I had a different idea in mind. Um, but when I went, um, a friend came to visit and he wanted to go see the Cape Coast Castle. Um, and I ended up going there and that was um, life-changing. And I knew that I wanted to write about that place. So that's one example of a very kind of um, immediate visceral stroke of inspiration. Um, but for Transcendent Kingdom, it was far more nebulous. Like it's hard for me to say where that book began. It's just kind of a million little threads that I uh, decided to follow um, and see where they led. Um, so it's, it's not always clearly defined. Well, um, in, in any event, the inspiration led to tremendous results and we want to congratulate you on the wonderful success of both Homegoing and Transcendent Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, thank so thank you, uh, both Yah and, and Derek. And at this point, Joan and I are gonna turn the conversation over to the two of you. Um, so as Ghanaian American and as fellow writers, um, your reflection at this, your reflections at this moment in history will certainly be most interesting, and we're delighted to to hear what you what you have to say. So, um, without further delay, uh, Derek, please go go ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's the same. Bacheo. For those who don't speak Chi, I'm sure there are many people who are joining us who don't speak Chi. I just asked how Ya is. And Ya is just so polite. She said, I'm 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 well pleased. So, you know, <laughs> such a polite get in girl. Um, um yeah, I've I've asked Ya to start us off with a reading from Transcendent Kingdom. This is the book. Transcendent Kingdom. If you have if you do if you do not have this book, man, I mean, please order it now. 
obviously from your local um, independent bookstore, not from Amazon, but this is an excellent, <laughs> excellent novel. And much of our discussion is going to be centered on this novel. Um, but to start us off, yeah, if you could just read an excerpt for us, please. <clears throat> I'm sure. I'll just read from the very beginning to keep things simple. Um, whenever I think of my mother, I picture a queen-sized bed with her lying in it, a practice stillness filling the room. For months on end, she colonized that bed like a virus. The first time when I was a child, and then again when I was a graduate student. The first time, I was sent to Ghana to wait her out. While there, I was walking through Kejitian Market with my aunt when she grabbed my arm and pointed. Look, a crazy person, she said in Shui. Do you see a crazy person? I was mortified. My aunt was speaking so loudly, and the man, tall, with dust caked into his dreadlocks, was within earshot. I see, I see, I answered in a low hiss. The man continued past us, mumbling to himself as he waved his hands about in gestures that only he could understand. My aunt nodded, satisfied, and we kept walking, past the hordes of people gathered in that agoraphobia-inducing market, until we reached the stall where we would spend the rest of the morning attempting to sell knockoff handbags. In my three months there, we sold only four bags. Even now, I don't completely understand why my aunt singled the man out to me. Maybe she thought there were no crazy people in America, that I had never seen one before. Or maybe she was thinking about my mother, about the real reason I was stuck in Ghana that summer, sweating in a stall with an aunt I hardly knew while my mother healed at home in Alabama. I was 11 and I could see that my mother wasn't sick, not in the ways that I was used to. I didn't understand what my mother needed healing from. I didn't understand, but I did. And my embarrassment at my aunt's loud gesture had as much to do with my understanding as it did with the man who had passed us by. My aunt was saying that, that is what crazy looks like. But instead, what I heard was my mother's name. What I saw was my mother's face, still as lake water, the pastor's hand resting gently on her forehead, his prayer a light hum that made the room buzz. I'm not sure I know what crazy looks like, but even today, that's my dog. <laughs> but even today, when I hear the word, I picture a split screen, the dreadlocked man in Kejitia on one side, my mother lying in bed on the other. I think about how no one at all reacted to that man in the market, not in fear or disgust, nothing, save my aunt who wanted me to look. He was, it seemed to me, at perfect peace, even as he gesticulated wildly, even as he mumbled. But my mother in her bed, infinitely still, was wild inside. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to begin here. Yeah. Um, that scene you read is set in Kijitia, um market. Kijitia is in Kumasi. Um, I am interested, all the parts in um, Transcendent Kingdom that are set in Ghana are set in Kumasi. With Homegoing, the parts that were set in Kumasi, the history kind of forced your hand, right? 
right? You, you kind of have to, you know, um, because they happened in Kumase. But with Transcendent Kingdom, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the choice to set all parts um, that were set in Ghana in Kumase was um, a choice you made. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a choice that was determined by history or any other factor. And I, uh, to, to give the audience some context, Ghana is, uh, in terms of area, Ghana is about the size of Oregon. Um, Accra is the capital of Ghana. Accra is the biggest city. Kumasi is the second largest city. And in terms of what Accra is like, Accra is a, is a, is a cosmopolitan city. It's uh, as, as a lot of capital cities tend to be. Or to steal Taiye Selassie's word, it's an Afropolitan city, you know? And, um, you know, knowing Yaya, knowing myself, we're, we're both pretty Afropolitan people. <laughs> And um, in my novel, all the parts that are set in Ghana are also set in Kumase. I, I was born in Kumase, but I've never lived in Kumase. The only reason I was born in Kumase is because of my mother's first child, and she wanted to be closer to her mother while she was having her first child. Uh, but after, you know, she got her fill of her mom, we packed our bags, we went to our car, which is where she was, um, she, where she was based. Um, so I, I in, in Ghana, I lived primarily all my life in, in, in Accra. And yet it is Kumasi that lures me. It is Kumasi that interests me. And I think I was halfway into my novel when I realized that, oh snap, all of the, all of the parts set in Ghana are set in Kumasi. And, um, but as I said earlier, we're both pretty Afropolitan and one might think that it's Accra that will pull us in, that will lure us. So I'm very interested to find out what is, what is it about Kumasi that appeals to you? Yeah, um, well, when I think of like my family and, and what my family thinks of as home, when they talk about Ghana, it's Kumasi. Mm -hmm. um, even though um, my, my mother is Fanti and my father's Ashanti, so I, I come from a, um, a divided household, uh, an integrated household. Um, but my mother's side of the family, they moved to Kumasi um, before she was born. And so she stayed there for a few years and then she lived with her dad in Abakrampa mm -hmm. um, for the rest of her childhood. Um, so she grew up in the central region, but all of my all of my uh, aunts and uncles and cousins on both sides of my family um, lived in Kumasi. So uh, on the rare occasions, we only went to Ghana once as a family, um, and then I went back uh, by myself when I was twenty. But on those occasions, uh, the place where I spent all of my time was Kumasi, uh, maybe a little bit in in the central region, a little in Cape Coast, um, but for the most part, um, it was Kumasi. I think maybe I spent like two days in Accra, mm. so I don't really know Accra very oh. well, um, even though I know obviously that it's this this major city and a, and uh, a city that's so uh, that has such a um, a storied reputation. Kumasi is what. Um, is what feels familiar to me. Mm. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm writing about Ghana, when I'm thinking about Ghana, um, I'm thinking mostly about, about that place because that's the place that I know the best. And it's full of pretty colorful people. You know, the Ashantis are known to be quite colorful. I'm Ashanti myself. So yeah. I think that's the conclusion that I, I have reached, you know. Um, Kumasi presents writers like you and me the opportunity to write some pretty colorful character <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um so i 
in you in 2016 you wrote uh, a piece in the uh, in the new york times it was an op-ed piece in the new york times the title of the piece was i'm Ghanaian american am i black um which is quite an intriguing title and much of our conversation is um also going to draw on what you said in this um piece but one thing you mentioned in this piece was that um, when you got to college, that was the first time you heard the word diaspora and you read the works of Toni Morrison and Chinua Achebe and you sensed the conversation between the two. Mm-hmm. And I am so intrigued by this. And I would love to know what was this conversation that you sensed them having? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, you know, Morrison, I think for me, was the first time that I had ever heard the term, the white gaze, had ever heard that concept of of there being um, this idea of writing toward, writing to, writing under the influence of um, white people's impressions of your work. Um, And she herself has said, I'm gonna gonna read a quote from her. Um, She said, Chinua Achebe along with Camera Lay, Bessie Head and others, constituted a complete education for me, learning how to disassemble the gaze that I was wrestling with, the habitual but self-conscious writing toward a non-Black reader that threatened and coded much of African-American literature, discovering how to eliminate, to manipulate the Eurocentric eye in order to stretch and plumb my own imagination. I attribute these learned lessons to Chinua Achebe. Um, And I had read her work and read Achebe's work before I I read that quote or before I like started to kind of investigate that connection more deeply, but what I think those two those two writers do for me um, is allow me to understand that there is a way um, that there should be a way, and always you have to kind of find a way to knock off the um, she calls she calls him like the the man on your shoulder, the yeah. white gaze on your shoulder. You have to knock that off in order to um, to write uh, works that 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 center um, your people. Uh, I always whenever I'm writing, I I remember um, Morrison talking about um, Invisible Man and saying invisible to whom? Um, So that that question at the end of everything that you're that you're working on and and that question like kind of being present in your mind as you're doing your work, I think is something that I got from from her um, and something that she got from from Achebe. Um, And I really appreciate that, that um, that centrality. I found that very interesting on, um, you know, in Transcendent Kingdom, it, I, I, I definitely see the evidence uh, of um, Toni Morrison's influence, but I also see the, a, a bit of um, Alice Walker and the color purple in Transcendent Kingdom. There is an epistolary element to Transcendent Kingdom. Uh, the main character, Gifty, writes um, in her diary and she writes to God. And, um, you know, I think this will be helpful. And I'm going to ask you to do something that I hate when people ask me to do, but I've actually seen you do it brilliantly. So I don't feel too bad asking you to do this. Could we, could we get a little summary of what Transcendent Kingdom is about? (laughs) Yes, of course. I I did not know what you were about to ask. I was like, okay, Derek, calm down. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so Transcendent Kingdom is about a woman named Gifty who is uh, getting her PhD in neuroscience um, and she studies something called the neural pathways of reward seeking behavior 
um, which sounds very complicated, but basically she studies addiction and depression in mice. Um, and it's at a time in her life when her own mother, who is suffering from a second bout of uh, major depressive disorder, has come to stay with her. So she finds herself taking care of her mother um, while conducting this research, while also reflecting on her childhood, particularly the years that led up to her beloved older brother Nana's passing. Um, so it's a it's a book that uh, grapples with addiction and, and depression and faith and family um, and science and religion. Mm -hmm. um, so back to my earlier question. So, um, you know, Transcendent Kingdom feels like amal an amalgamation of like all the greats. You know, we have mm -hmm. we have elements of Amatayedu, who is a famous. You know, she is the godmother of Ghanaian letters. We have, of course, Toni Morrison. And as I mentioned earlier, we we have, at least structurally, structurally, because of the epistolary element of uh, um, Gifty writing letters to God, to God, that echo of, um, it echoes so much the color purple for me. And I wanted to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about your thoughts on this and whether the color purple in any way influence this work? You know, it's so funny. We were talking earlier about inspiration and I said it can come from, from anywhere. I feel that way about influence too. It's so, mm. um, for me, oftentimes, like it doesn't feel, uh, sometimes it's very intentional. Like I knew that I was going to be kind of um, trying to draw on some of the, the concepts of Adu's work, particularly this moment in Changes where she talks about how you can't blame Westerners for a particular condition or idea if, if you have a word for that thing in your own language. Um, that was like something that I was using to kind of build this book out. Um, so sometimes it's really explicit, but other times it's not as at all. Um, other people have been mentioning on this tour, the color purple. Um, and interestingly, like I, I, I didn't make that connection. Um, I haven't read the color purple in at least like 15 years, but mm. obviously it, it's there, you know, it's somewhere in there. Mm. Um, and, and, and I love the way that that, that that work, that influence can work in that way where suddenly um, you're in conversation with something that you maybe have buried somewhere inside of you that has like kind of become a part of your literary DNA in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I'm interested in this dynamic of Toni Morrison reading Chinua Achebe and sensing and taking from it what she, she needed. Um, and you have discussed, you as a Ghanaian American, reading Black, America, Black American writer like Toni Morrison and essentially um, taken from her, the same thing she took from Chinua Achebe, you yeah. know, which is, um, which is, you know, dust off ways, <laughs> you know, otherwise yeah. it's going to trouble your, your work. And um, what I'm interested in is this uh, what I see is a triangle, right? Where um, there is the, the African writer Chinua Achebe passing it down to Toni Morrison and Toni Morrison passing it down to you. But there is, um, I assume it forms a triangle. So now what I'm interested in is Chinua and other African writers 
Um, you touched on Amatairu, but I'm also interested in how has Chinua influenced you? Um, because he is the godfather of African yeah. letters. And I think we would be remiss not to discuss how he has shaped um, your work. Yeah. You know, I think I, I came to American writers, to Black American writers first, uh, mm -hmm. really just by um, by circumstance, because I was living here um, and my parents weren't like giving me African writers to read on my own uh, and I, I wasn't being taught them in schools. Um, and so the books that I gravitated to when I was younger, when I started to kind of develop a, a literary consciousness were books by African-American writers. Mm. Um, and, and that really spoke to me. And it was the first time I think that I was like, able to see a path into writing as a career also mm. to see Morrison's face on the back of a book meant a great deal to me uh, when all of the faces on the backs of the books that I had been assigned um, were, were male um, and white. Um, and so that, that was like where the influence began. I didn't come to African literature until, um, until I decided to get there on my own, frankly. Um, it wasn't until my college years when I um, realized that I was kind of missing some, um, some depth in my in my literary experience and missing for me uh, this kind of rootedness in in place in home um, and I unlike you like I didn't spend very much time in Ghana I didn't have like a, a deep sense of myself as Ghanaian mm -hmm. um, and I also grew up uh, with a family who for better or for worse they had their reasons were not particularly um, were not particularly uh, keen to like tell us stories and take us back to Ghana and keep that culture alive in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, they did in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in order to kind of get that sustenance, in order to kind of create that side of the lineage, I was very reliant on, on literature, mm -hmm. um, which, which up until that point had been how I kind of figured most things out. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm thankful for books in that, in that regard. Um, but when I started to seek it out, um, obviously Things Fall Apart was, uh, was the, one of the first, if not the first book that, um, that I read that I realized I needed to read. Um, and really, truly hard to overstate even today, like how, how good that book is, uh, which sound, it's, it sounds so simple to say. It's just like an incredibly well-written, incredibly smart, incredibly lyrical, um, direct, like clear, concise prose. prose. It's just, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful novel. Mm -hmm. um, and to have a beautiful novel um, that, that did, again, center Blackness, center, in this case, center, uh, center Africans, um, just felt revolutionary to me at that point. Um, I hadn't, I had been writing, as I said before, I'd been writing since age seven. I don't think I'd ever written a character who was Ghanaian, mm. you know? It, it was like nebulously, <laughs> nebulously racial, nebulously, uh, you know, there was no, there was no, there was no rootedness in my work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think partly it was because of so much of what I was reading, mm. um, so much of what I was reading didn't, didn't depict me in any way. And so I didn't realize, I didn't feel like I had the permission to, to depict myself in some way, to make room for, um, for myself in those ways. And, and reading Achebe, reading Edu, um, reading Adichie, um, that's, those, are the, those are the writers that I think started to allow me to understand that um, I could kind of you know, shoulder my way in. And knowing that, like knowing that my way in was not going to be Achebe's way, it wasn't going to be Adichie's way, because I didn't grow up like them. I didn't grow up 
in the place that I was going to be writing about um, sometimes. Um, and yet here's a little bit more room. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And um, well, you have occupied that room quite well, if I should <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you mentioned Adichie, and I, I do think you are in conversation with Adichie and other contemporary mm -hmm. African writers. Um, I'm gonna to return to the New York Times piece. Um, and this line from the piece, um, I'm gonna read it. At school, a girl told me she felt sorry for me because I would never find a boyfriend what with black men being what they are. What with black men being what they are. And I mean, it goes without saying, you know, I think, I think we could, we all know what she meant by that, right? The stereotype that black men have had to contend with since time immemorial. We're violent, we're brutish, we're, we are, we are, you know, animalistic, what have you. Um, and uh, this is clearly what this girl was suggesting. Um, and if, if you remember Adichie's uh, The Danger of a Single Story talk, somewhere in the talk, she mentions she gave, a, she gave a reading at some school and a student came up to her and said, I am so sorry that Nigerian men are so violent, mm -hmm. you know? And Adichie being Adichie came, I don't remember the snarky, rightly so, it had to be a snarky remark, but she responded as she should, <laughs> as she was supposed. <laughs> but um, what what I've come to realize that as as um, as if to combat that narrative, right? Recent contemporary African literature features a lot of men who are far from violent. In fact, they are romantic. I mean, these are Gatsby-like characters. I tell you, they do whatever <laughs> they need to do to win the women that they love. Um, and what they do is they give up the only home they know. They give up their homes for the West. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm thinking of uh, characters like Obinze in Adichie's Americana, who goes all over the world because he's trying to get him some Ifamilu. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of Ch uh, Chinonso and Chigozi Obioma's an orchestra of minorities who does the same thing. I mean, he goes all the way to Greece. Who goes to Greece? You feel me? <laughs> <laughs> he does that for the woman he loves, you know. And now we have the Chinchin Man in your novel, right? The Chinchin Man really didn't want to go to America, right? Yeah. But he, he went to America in pursuit of the woman he loves. Mm. Um, but in all of these, th all of these three narratives don't necessarily have a happy ending. They don't end up together happily. Um, and and it's, it's, it's clear to me that there's a commentary being made about the way the West, if not destroys, stalls black love. Mm. And I am interested to find out what if there is a commentary, what is it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for the Chinchin Man, you're right. He didn't. He didn't want to to come to America. Um, his his wife, Gifty, and Nana's mother had decided that this was the way to, as she put it, give her children the world. Mm -hmm. um, and for him, the world was in Ghana. He had. A, he was content. He had everything he needed except for his wife. Um, and so he decided to to join her. And lo and behold, they end up in Alabama. 
um, not his first choice of place, not his first choice of state, and not his cho first choice of country. Um, and, and suddenly, I think he becomes aware of a particular kind of anti-Black racism um, mm. that he did not see in Ghana, right? Mm. If you come from a country where everyone is the same race as you, um, you don't experience um, you don't experience anti-Black racism in quite the same way. Mm. Um, and so here he is uh, being met with, um, um, with, you know, accusations of stealing, being met with um, being followed, um, being met with like the kind of um, fear of his physical person, uh, a fear that makes him actually try to hunch his body. And yes. he's never had to do that before. Um, and what he decides um, is that he doesn't, he does not going to put up with it. He doesn't want to stay for it. Um, and so in, in essence, I guess the, the love of this woman, um, his wife, was not enough um, to, to tip the scales in favor of staying in, in the U.S. So he goes back to Ghana and his absence creates this, um, this rift in the family. It's the beginning of, I think, so many of the, of the problems that all three of the, of the other characters have. Mm -hmm. um, and so this this force that is out of his control in many ways the the kind of Western influence on uh, on an African immigrant male um, begins the the other like gentle rents gentle and not so gentle rents in the conditions of the lives of his family members mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's not just him experiencing that as it's never just one person experiencing. Um, anything uh, and and it, it ripples out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so he 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 experiences racism, which pushes him out. Um, and the, you know when black immigrants when they move to the U.S. are black, right? They're black in America. The immigrant part, you, you know, mm. dro drops off um, because all all the racist sees is a black person. And yet, mm. and yet, you know, um, I, I, in your New York Times speech, I found this, this aspect of your New York Times speech, especially intriguing. Um, you were young, you were playing with a group of black girls and uh, you were called the N-word. Um, and um, one of the boys turned around after having called you the N-word and pointed to you and said, not you, mm. not you, right? So it seems to me what I just said is 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 um, this is a this is contrary to some degree to what I just said because this this white boy for some reason <laughs> decided mm. that not you and I'm 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 interested in figuring out what you think he saw that made him say not you. Mm. Well, I think what happened, I know what happened is that the other two girls um, immediately started defending themselves. Mm. Um, and I being an internalizer, not an externalizer um, mm. in psychoanalytical speech uh, was just kind of sitting there stunned. Like I didn't say anything. It was so, yeah. uh, it was the first time that I had ever actually been called that directly. It was stunned. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting because I think 
to their to their minds, you know, what they had done was not the violence. The violence was the two girls defending themselves, yelling back at them. Mm. That was the violence that justified the thing that they said. Mm. And so to see me um, not expressing rage in that particular way, in that same way, um, allowed them to believe um, that what they had said was was only applicable to these other two girls. Mm. Um, and so it's this it's this kind of insidious way in which you don't recognize that you are the one doing the harmful thing in the first mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. um, and where the kind of um, the, the quietness or the lack of uh, lack of response gets re gets rewarded in some way um, and you know thankfully um, with time um, I was able to kind of recognize that moment for what it was, mm -hmm. um, but it was it was a, a particularly confusing thing to experience at age mm -hmm. seven. Um, why not me? What does that word mean? Why why um, why am I being called this? Why are my friends being called this? How should mm -hmm. I have reacted? What should I have said? Like all of these questions that I didn't really know how to deal with, and that frankly, God bless them, my parents didn't know how to help me with. Um, and so it took me, it took me, I think, a little longer to kind of start to parse out, um, you know, just the, the, that my, my ethnicity did not provide me protections in the same way that I had been told that they might, uh, that it might, um, that that was a lesson I had to learn. And how had you been told that your ethnicity might protect you? I think it's kind of the, the standard model minority, Black mm -hmm. respectability politics soup, <laughs> toxic soup, where you're just, you, you know, you're, you're just told that the, the harder you work, um, the more respect you'll get, um, the, the, the better the outcome of your life will be, um, mm -hmm. without any real uh, or deep interrogation of the fact that the, that the playing field is completely unlevel, that you mm. shouldn't have to be working harder than anyone else to get the same amount of respect. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, so much of my childhood, I think, um, was about, um, was about respectability, was about being perceived, being seen as good, being seen as polite. And some of that, I think, would have happened regardless of whether I'd grown up in Ghana or here. Like there's such a, I was talking to my brother about this the other day, there's so much emphasis on like being respectful to your elders, right? Um, in Ghanaian culture. Um, so that, that like politeness thing, I think was always going to be there. Um, but the, the like, the like, the quality of the goodness thing, Mm -hmm. um, the goodness being a racialized goodness thing mm -hmm. um, is not something, it was something that I think got attached once we came to America. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a way of kind of separating ourselves um, from, from what we perceived to be the problem, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, Black Americans, um, Africans were, you know, we're fine. We were, we were working hard. We were doing what we should do. Um, and that, that kind of toxic mentality um, needed to be unlearned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, what I'm hearing and what I agree is that, you know, our parents, our, our parents um, propagated and you know, a lot of the older Africans propagate this narrative. We are the model minorities. We exist a, 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 a wrong hire than black Americans, you know, and you, you state this directly in the article, you write, many of the older West African immigrants I knew parroted the language of white supremacy. 
right? So they, they uh, you know, our, our old, the older generation does that. But I, I'm also interested in how white supremacy has recognized that and is weaponizing it. Um, and, um, you know, I do want to stay a little bit longer with this not you um, idea because um, when I, in the novel, at some point in the novel, Gifty gets pulled over by a cop. And you know, I have to tell you, yeah, I, I audibly gasped. I was like, <laughs> I was like, ooh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> you know, I was, um, she gets pulled over by a cop. And what happens is the cop lets Gifty go. And the the suggestion is that the cop is letting Gifty go because Gifty is pursuing a doctoral degree at Stanford. I mean, she's the model. Um, well, I, I, you know, she, she, she's doing something great. You know, she's, mm. she's an academic, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but then I, I couldn't let it go because I thought of somebody like Henry Louis Gates, you know, Henry Louis Gates is, I mean, he's as, he's as decorated and as Harvard as a black man could get, mm. <laughs> you know, and yet even he, even he just simply getting into his house was arrested yeah. by, um, uh, by, by a cop. And, and so that cop letting Gifty go, I, I couldn't just let it go. And I wondered whether he had looked at Gifty, because he does, he does get her particulars, her license, her registration, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I'm wondering, had he seen something, a last name, something that suggested to him, not you. And in, in that way, is this an example of how white supremacy is capitalizing on this nonsense that mm. our older generation has parents? And to some degree, there are some people in our generation that do that too, right? Yeah. This nonsense that somehow we're better than Africa, than black descendants of slaves and 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 i just i wanted to pick your mind a little bit about that do you think there is a little bit more to that story beyond just uh his seeing that she was this intellectual learned researcher at stanford mm. Mm, that's a that's a deep reading you know i i i don't know if i was conscious of of that when I was um, when I was writing that scene, what I knew that I wanted to happen was, you know, that that kind of like clench feeling, that gasp that you express, um, that we all feel, that that black people everywhere feel when they are put into confrontation uh, with a, a police officer, where you're like, this can go one of many ways. <laughs> Which way is it going to go? Um, and for Gifty. Um, maybe Gifty is perceiving it as a not you moment. Mm. Um, the thing ex excluding her is that, you know, that bumper sticker that says uh, Stanford University School of Medicine. Uh, but maybe for the officer, the thing that is excluding her isn't just that bumper sticker. It is, as you said, that uh, the last name. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's a good question. Mm. Oh, Gifty, 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 Gifty. Gifty, Gifty. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm about to turn this into a book club. I don't like Gifty. No, I, of course not. <laughs> no, I, um, I'm glad you mentioned, um, I'm glad you mentioned Gifty, uh, her internalized um, 
I, I guess what she calls self-loathing, right? Um, at some point in the novel, this is what she says. I didn't grow up with a language for, a way to explain, to parse out my self-loathing. I grew up only with my part, my little throbbing stone of self-hate that I carried around with me to church, to school. Right, and um, this self-loathing is something that I, I experienced um, beyond Gifty. Mm. I experienced it especially in Gifty's mother. Uh, yeah. and, and I thought, you know, so to, to, to provide context for the audience, um, Gifty's mother, um, she, she suffers a mental breakdown, um, because, um, well, one, she's lost her husband, her husband has left her and two, she loses her child, her, her, her child dies, um, he becomes addicted to opioids and unfortunately um, loses his life. Um, and this self-loathing comes from their commitment to this white church in Alabama, this white, this racist white church in Alabama that parents nonsense <laughs> you know that has that has led to their internalizing this self-loathing and um with gifty's mother especially i was struck by the fact that you know not only um is she um is she not i would say not only does she um present as non-black in America, but she also never goes back home to Ghana. Yeah. She never goes back home to Ghana. And in fact, when Gifty returns home to Ghana, Gifty's um, aunt points that out, mm. right? And I, you know, this self-loathing that is true of a lot of Africans in this country, um, this parroting, of white supremacy that is true of a lot of Africans in this country is, is not only, at least from my vantage point, is not only leading to the, the, a loss of identity as a black person in the US, but it sometimes it leads, it, it leads to a loss of identity as even a person from the country from which they hail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, and I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this uh, a little bit. You know, um, I, how much of Gifty's mother's own self-loathing really debilitates her because she becomes completely debilitated. Is is as you as you read in the excerpt, she is immobile. She's stuck to bed, um, and I wonder how much of the self-loathing contributed to that. Mm, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think um, I think certainly the self-loathing contributed to it, but I don't. I also do not think that Gifty's mother 
um, has the emotional tools, the emotional capacity to recognize the ways in which this isolation, this self-loathing um, has acted in her own life. Like I, I wonder, because we only get Gifty's perspective in the novel, we don't really know about what trauma is forming um, Gifty's mother's own experience uh, because we, we get the story from, from Gifty um, mm -hmm. and Gifty's relationship with her mother is, is fractured in many ways. Her mother is like Gifty, very reticent, very guarded. Um, Gifty does not even know that she has an aunt until she goes to uh, Ghana to, to mm -hmm. when, until she's sent mm -hmm. to stay with that aunt. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's that's trauma, right? Like why why can't you tell your child that you have siblings? Like what trauma is is there that you can't even speak it, that you can't mm -hmm. even say it? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think her her own life is is certainly formed um, by by a, a deep well of um, of trauma, and I think specifically a, a trauma that has to do with isolation, in some regards, a self-imposed isolation, mm. um, but also this decision, as you mentioned before, to go to a white church, um, this decision um, to, as the book says, to not plug into the Ghanaian community that is available to her, um, all of these choices that I think she believes she's making because she just has to work too much, because things are incredibly hard, um, and because of some other secret thing in her own in her own past and her own kind of uh, mental capacity that we don't ever get. Um, mm -hmm. Whatever it is that, that has led her to believe that this is the right thing to do has cost her greatly, and mm -hmm. has cost her children greatly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if she if she were a more emotionally capable woman a more emotionally attentive woman she would have been able to see sooner the ways that her kids were suffering mm -hmm. um, the ways that her kids were internalizing that racism mm -hmm. um, the ways that her kids had become so completely isolated from community uh, be it black community or Ghanaian community um, that they didn't know how to see themselves they didn't mm -hmm. know who they were um, mm -hmm. she would have been able to see that um, mm -hmm. and intervene sooner um, but whatever, whatever, you know, whatever pit there is in her own life, mm -hmm. um, whatever plate, whatever walls she has put up in her own life around things that she doesn't want to look at, around things that hurt, um, we, the reader is never really allowed to know. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, um, like with Homegoing, uh, Transcendent Kingdom is very much about inherited trauma uh, and the ways that uh, the things that your parents are dealing with show up in your life, uh, whether you want them to or not, um, in ways that you might not be able to articulate or not. Um, mm. But Gifty's internalized racism um, has has everything to do with, with those choices that her mother made um, to place them in this white community um, without, without Black community, without Ghanaian community, um, and to kind of leave her children to figure it out on their own. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, and I hope this is not how it's coming off. I know we have some, um, some of our older generation Africans joining us. So I, I don't, <laughs> and you know, we're supposed to respect them. So I don't want to come off as being too harsh on them because you know what, at the end of the day, they are just trying to survive in America. And there are parallels actually uh, um, that we can point to that um, some African-Americans, descendants of slaves, um, 
you, uh, they've made similar choices, right? They've made this these similar choices of what I call unblackening themselves. And when you cons- um, when you look at the realm of sports, especially, um, we all love Michael Jordan. We all love Michael Jordan, right? But Michael Jordan became the billion dollar athlete he became because to some degree he unblackened himself. And when I say that, blackness is inherently political, right? It has been politicized from time immemorial. The fact of the slave trade is a move, is a political move. So there's no way we can get away from blackness being inherently political, you know? Um, But he actively, right, chose not to be political. And I define that as unblackening. You you can be, um, when you actively, actively seek to depoliticize yourself as a black person is how I define um, unblacking yourself. So he did that. And also, you know, um, we wish him well. He had a terrible accident yesterday. And of course we wish him well. Tiger Woods is another example, right? And he actually went as far as coining a new term. He called himself Cablinasian, you know, and this is how he became a billion dollar athlete. Now, when we look at black athletes though, who lived their full black selves, (laughs) lived their full black selves, um, we see that they they had to contend with a lot of racism. So obviously I'm thinking Colin Kaepernick, but more more interesting to me are the Williams sisters who, who, who entered the arena with those beats in their heads, in, in their hair, it's just as black as they could be, right? And, and faced so much racism. And the irony here for me is that their father, their father simply bought a book. He simply purchased a book and decided, I am going to, um, I am going to teach these two women to become not only two of the greatest tennis players of all time, but one of whom is the greatest athlete of all time. And if that is not a story that supports American, uh, you know, the American myth of just work hard and you're going to succeed, I don't know what is. And yet, and yet, that is these, that family in particular face significant amount of racism. I guess the point that I'm trying to make that is in the arena of sports, in the arena of sports, there's been this kind of gaslighting of Black people where sports has been the arena where some of the most impossible glass ceilings have been shattered, right? The, I mean, baseball, I could go on and on and on. And it's where a lot of Black athletes have made wealth significant. And yet they cannot, they cannot be, they're not allowed to be their full black selves. And to come back to the novel, Nana is an athlete. Nana is an athlete. He's a star athlete. And at at a moment in the novel, I felt like finally their mother 
was understanding what it was to be black in America because her son was experiencing what black athletes, right? Have experienced in America. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how Nana's experience as a, as a sports star in Alabama might actually be the moment that their mother finally realized, oh snap, we are black in America. Yeah, um, well, I grew up in Alabama where football is king. Like and my family was not a very sporty family. Like we didn't pay attention to any sports really. Um, and yet there was constantly, like everybody would come into school, come into church with the awareness of what had happened in the Alabama or Auburn football game. Like college football was everything. Um, and quickly, I think you start to perceive, um, particularly with college sports, um, the way that, that these children, these young people are being exploited on the field, uh, these young, often black children, um, when you're speaking about football and, and basketball, mm. um, are, are being exploited, not getting paid, uh, doing labor that brings the college incredible amounts of money. Um, God knows what their, their home lives are like. Um, and, and not being taken care of, not having that kind of um, support in any other arena. As long as they're winning, everyone is happy with them. Nobody wants to know what they're going through beyond, um, beyond what they can give um, to the school, to the community, to the, to the city, to the town. And here comes Nana, this gifted uh, basketball player who has started to kind of raise the profile of his, uh, of his high school um, and in turn of, of his city. Um, mm. And that, that's meaningful to a, place, um, to a place like Huntsville, Alabama. Like that means a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and yet again, he's going through some things in his personal life and his family life and nobody is really there to support that or to see him um, or to lift him up in those ways. And so I think you're right. I think that is the first instance in which um, their mother starts to recognize that there's this kind of um, hypocrisy going on that, that we care only insofar as he can perform for us. Beyond that, uh, we don't care at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is the dilemma that so many black athletes uh, are, are faced with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah i think we're you know we're, we're, we've gone over time i was enjoying it so much that i just oh, oh exactly no, we, we, my apologies my sincerest no, apologies Russell. no it's I, I i need to apologize to, to you for for butting in and, and being the, the time monitor here um <laughs> I'm just glad that we are recording this and also broadcasting it on Facebook Live so that we can go back and enjoy the richness and depth of this discussion. It's been um, absolutely fascinating, but we still have some time left and uh, there are some other things that we want to, uh, to get to on our program. Um, not the least of which is that um, we would be delighted Derek, if you could do a short reading from your soon to be published novel, What Napoleon Could Not Do. Uh, if you could give us a little taste of the novel before it hits the shelves, we would just uh, be enthralled. 
I'm going to follow Yaz's lead and just read from the beginning. I'm going to read the first page. <clears throat> um, this is what Napoleon can, and it's also set in Kumase. Um, so Kumase power. <laughs> from his place at the veranda, Mr. Nt watched them advancing toward the house without incident until Patricia's mother came to a stop about 50 yards away. She held in place curiously with one leg elevated onto the makeshift bridge leading to the house, the other splayed behind her. It could have been a stretch in preparation for aerobics, but Patricia's mother, carelessly stout and in her 60s, had no use for aerobics. Maybe she stood wide-legged to let whatever breeze was rising from the stream run up her thighs. Just as Miss T was contemplating this, they locked eyes. She looked at him straight. She wobbled her raised leg. A taunt, that was it. She'd stop to taunt him with an assessment of the wooden planks. It would be just like her. Two days prior, during a phone conversation to finalize plans for today, she'd predicted a quick divorce proceeding. After all, she'd concluded, it's not as if Jacob has anything of worth for us to fight over. She was repeating herself now with her assessing leg. Such worthlessness was there to Miss Nt's household. So much worthlessness that even the sturdy bridge, which she knew well, might have taken a worthless turn. Mercifully, she would be out of their lives after today. All would be said and done after today. Why he hadn't followed his first instinct to thwart the marriage, only God knew. He'd conducted an initial investigation into her six years ago. Someone had called her a woman in charge. Another had said, what father? When he'd asked for the whereabouts of Patricia's father. That same person had mentioned that Patricia had a sister, her father, also out of the picture. Worried about what might become of his son, Jacob, Mr. N.T. had sat him down to ask, are you prepared to marry into a home where men don't matter? Jacob had laughed off the concern, his eyelids flitting in that way of his. Patricia wasn't like her mother, he'd said. Men matter to her. How terribly Jacob had miscalculated, leading them here, with Patricia's mother enjoying her little taunt. Before marshalling onto the bridge, the three men she'd brought with her to certify that if Jacob had ever mattered to her daughter, he no longer did. Thank you. That was wonderful, Derek. Thank you. And, and what I've noticed just from that excerpt of, of your reading, and I'm more familiar with, with Yah's work, is there is a very distinctive visual quality to your writing and to, to Yah's um, that uh, the writing is not only very descriptive, it's very imagistic. Um, and there's a certain vibrance there that, that really comes out. And that kind of, you know, serves as a segue to kind of the, um, the other part of the subtitle of this, of this world canvas, and that is Ghanaian art. Um, clearly literature is an art in and of itself, but with respect to the, the plastic arts, um, we know that uh, our own UI Stanley Museum of Art has a fabulous collection of, of African art. And Derek, you are connected quite closely to that, 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 uh, that collection. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you think are the highlights of this collection, but maybe before that, uh, were you surprised to see such an extensive collection of African art here in, in Iowa City? I was <laughs> very much. I was. I was very. I was very surprised to learn that you know, the Stanley Museum of Art, you know, um, had 
among the preeminent collections of African art, um, you know, um, among uh, academic museums. I was very surprised to find that out. I never thought of all places, Iowa City. Um, but in terms of what are some of the highlights, for me, I'll speak personally, right? I'm Ghanaian, so I'm biased. Um, some of uh, the Ghanaian pieces, especially the Kente, my aunt, and um, that resonates with me, especially because my father, um, I'm a Shanti, and a Shanti is a matrilineal. So um, I'm from where my mother is from. So I'm more familiar, I was more familiar with where my mother was from than I was, than I was with where my father was from. But when I first started at, at the museum, the curator of um, African and Oceanic Art, Corey Gunlock, invited me to co-curate uh, an exhibit with him. Uh, the exhibit formerly known as Flex, but uh, it's it, it's focused on masculinities in African art. And um, the pieces that are going to be in the show include uh, most of the, I think all of the Kente pieces that we have in our collection. But this was, you know, the poet Jericho Brown has this wonderful line that a poem is a gesture toward home. Right, and I think you can take the word poem out and plug in any other art form. Uh, the you called it the plastic art, um, the visual arts, right? Are a gesture toward home, and I have experienced that. You know, because of because of these Kente pieces, I I I went back to Ghana in two thousand nineteen went to Bonre Adamase, which is where Kente originated, which is where my father and his family are from. And I was able to learn about my background. And this was, this was as a result of um, the African collection in of all places, Iowa City at the Stanley Museum of Art. So, um, the 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 pieces that we have in our collections, I I think of as these gestures toward home, right? And it 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 it, it is especially meaningful to me because I've experienced it, you know. Right. Do you do you think you know? And obviously, the the collection is is rich and and vast, but are there aspects to the collection that are missing? Um, that is to say, if let's imagine for a second that you were going to be head of acquisitions <laughs> for the the collection of, of African art, what would you like to see uh, in order to? to oh, that's such a that's such a long list. Like <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, the the curator of African art, and I have a long list. We have a. Corey and I have fantasies about so many artists, you know, for example, uh, well, she's not Ghanaian, but Yaz's friend, Toyin Odutola has incredible work. We have, we have some of her work, but we would love to have more, love to have more. So yeah, hook it up, hook it up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that would be fabulous. And just to remind our audience, um, especially for those of you who are not in Iowa, is that we are currently rebuilding the Stanley Museum of Art and we plan to reopen it or open it um, in the spring of 2022. So in about, oh, a year, year and a half from, from now, 
you will be able to see this collection um, mm -hmm. in its brand new home. And mm -hmm. we are obviously very, very excited about, about that. Um, so thank you very much, Derek. Um, and as we sort of move to our, our final segment, I know that, that Joan, you had um, a couple of questions for, for Ya. So please, please go ahead. Sure. Well, Derek has just mentioned your friend Toyun Odutola. And um, so I understand you grew up together or spent some time together when you were younger. And now her emergence into, um, you know, international renown is somewhat similar to yours. As a young Black woman, what does this moment mean to you? Um, well, I mean, just as a, as a friend, as a childhood friend, it's, it's been um, hugely, hugely gratifying and um, exciting to see her career take off in the way that it has. Um, you know, I remember us as children in Huntsville, Alabama, and she was always, always working on something, even, even when we were, um, you know, quite young. And so um, to see her uh, start to kind of get the, not start, I mean, she's fully gotten the, the renown and um, the very, very deserved uh, recognition in her career has been um, uh, one of the joys of my, of my own life. Yeah, well, and I did read an article Derek was kind enough to pass on. Was it from Glamour? Uh, both you and she were standing together uh, and um, reflecting on, on your life um, in this country as, uh, you know, uh, Black women with uh, um, a homeland someplace else. And um, it was, it was a stunning article and you could see the friendship between the two of you, even though if I understand correctly, she's Nigerian in her background rather than Ghanaian. But um, uh, yeah, it must be really sweet to have known her when you were both kids uh, with ambition and, and now to, to see where you both are now. And just at the beginning, I know of a really great and long uh, successful career. So Russ has already said this so many times, and I'd like to say it again. Thank you both so, so much for being with us tonight. It's been really uh, exceptional. And uh, we have, I'm afraid, come to the end of the program. So please let me again thank um, Derek Nuro and uh, Yajazi and uh, Russ Ganim for being with us tonight. All World Canvas programs are available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. And you'll also be able to view this program again on YouTube. Uh, I hope you can join us for the next World Canvas, which will be on March 16th, when we'll be discussing COVID care for marginalized and vulnerable communities. So for International Programs, I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for joining us and good night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.